0: That banner I draw your attention to, if God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer to that question? Be careful. If God is for us, who can be against us? Five verses after that verse on the wall come these words. Verse 36. For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, I presume if somebody kills you, he's against you. If somebody slaughters you, he's against you. So what's the answer to the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Martin Burnham's funeral was Friday. You remember, I hope most of you know this story. A little over a year ago, he went back to the Philippines, was captured by the Abu Sayyaf group and was held hostage for a year, and then on June 7, was killed in the crossfire. His wife, Gracia, was rescued at Rose Hill Bible Church May 23rd last year. His last words to his people there were, I wasn't called to be a missionary. I wasn't called to the Philippines. I was just called to follow Christ, and that is what I'm doing Yes, Martin Burnham, you did follow him and you knew what Jesus said. Whoever would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will find it. Yes, Martin Burnham, you lost it. For his sake, and you found it. So, was anybody against him? If God is for you, who can be against you? It's no surprise what happened to him, is it? Paul had said it would happen, Peter had said it would happen, Jesus said it would happen. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you. I will give you a mouth and a wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. You'll be hated. Some of you they'll kill. And not a hair of your head will perish. So Martin Burnham, was anybody against you? If God is for you, who can be against you? Yes, they were against him. But they did not have final success in being against him. They killed him, but not a hair of his head, Jesus says, has perished. Now, right in the middle of this context comes Romans 8, 28. That's the verse we're on. Last week, this week, next week, Romans eight twenty eight, and here's what it says. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. And now we have a taste in the context of what the all things includes. It's not just the good things. We can all see that good things work together for our good, This context of Romans 8.28 is a bleak context for Christianity. Let me just give you a little bit of it. Romans chapter 8 verse 17. You will be glorified with Jesus if you suffer with Him. Verse 18. I regard the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 20, this whole creation, including all of us, was subjected to futility. Verse 23, even we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit groan inwardly, waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 25, in this hope you were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. Why did he say that? Why did he say the obvious statement, hope that is seen is not hope? The reason is because when you're saved in hope, you can't see most of the evidences of your salvation. You still get sick. You still get cancer. Things still break down. There's frustration. Everything seems to go wrong. And so he has to say the obvious. If you're saved in hope, remember, you can't see it. You can't see it. All over this room, God's room, there are people dying. Very serious illnesses. People of whom the world is not worthy because of their attachment to Jesus Christ. And He hasn't broken in with the heaven reward and given them everything we long for now and will not get now. So the context of Romans 8.28 is a bleak context. In fact, jump ahead to verse what 35 where it says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. So there it is. There's the context of Romans 8.28. Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, tribulation, distress. That's why we need verse 28 of Romans 8. It is a bleak context. Is anyone against us? Swords are against us? Distress is against us. Persecution is against us. And in this context, we hear all things, all this suffering, all this futility, all this bondage to decay, all this groaning, all this tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, all of this works together for good for those who love God. That's the message of Romans eight twenty-eight. So back to the banner on the wall. If God is for you, who can be against you? Can anyone? Well, we have many adversaries, many enemies, many obstacles. There's lots of opposition. You try to do anything for Jesus, you'll, you'll find out how much of your stuff can break. How many pointless frustrations there seem to be. How many things erect themselves in the way of moving forward in the path of love? Try to do anything risky or wonderful for Jesus, and you will discover how many things can be against you. But not ultimately. They cannot ultimately succeed against you. That's the point of that statement. If God is for you, nothing can successfully stand against you ultimately. They can kill you, they killed Martin Burnham. But not a hair of his head has perished, Jesus said. So this is a gospel call this morning because I know everybody on this parking lot wants God to be for you and not against you. God is all wise. He's all powerful. And we want him on our side, not on the other side. Because if the omnipotent all wise God is on the other side against us, we lose. We will perish. And so everybody here wants God on our side. So how can sinners say, God is for me? And the answer, of course, is will you love God through Jesus Christ? Will you trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Will you receive Jesus Christ as the one who lived a perfect life so that his righteousness will count for you? This is a gospel call right in the middle of this message saying, if you want God on your side, which is what I'm about to describe illustrations of, if you want this to be true for you, it can be. This is a gift. This is not something you earn. You don't live 56 years of cleanness and then say, now I've deserved it, God. Grant me your righteousness. Grant me your forgiveness. Grant me eternal life. No, you live 56 years of sin and then here today you will be with me in paradise. It's free. It is absolutely free if you'll receive it. If you'll trust Him. If you'll see God in and through Jesus as a welcoming Father and say, yes, you are the end of my quest. I love you through Jesus Christ. I hear your call. I receive your forgiveness. I accept the garment of your righteousness. I lay down the arms of rebellion. I follow Jesus. And then it's yours. And the rest of this message that I'm about to illustrate is yours. So I told you last week that I was going to give you some examples of Romans 8.28. So let's do that for a few minutes. The most famous example, probably, of Romans 8.28 in the Bible is the story of Joseph. You don't need to look these up. I'll just tell you the stories. And you know them, but I'll put verses in so that you can know I'm interpreting these biblically and not just out of my own Head. You remember what happened to Joseph? The, the son of Jacob had 11 brothers. They hated him because he had this dream that all of his brothers would bow down and serve him someday, and they couldn't stand that, so they found him at an opportune time. They stripped him, they threw him down in a pit. Then they saw a caravan going down to Egypt. They yanked him up out of the pit, they sold him into slavery. They thought that was the end of Joseph. They took his coat doused it with blood, took it back to his father Jacob, and the poor old man was told, I guess an animal got him. And Jacob, for the next 17 years, grieves his son. This is bad. These are bad things happening to Joseph and bad things happening to Jacob and bad things being done by the brothers. So here he is down now in Egypt, and he gets sold into Potiphar's house. And it looks like things are going to go well. This is the way life works. Many times, a little cloud parts, and all of a sudden, she lies about him and says he tried to rape her. And he gets thrown into prison, and so much for the good times that started to emerge. But in prison, again, it starts to look as though things are going to go a little better for for uh, Joseph because the jailer thinks he's a good guy and he puts him in charge of some things and there's the baker and the butler and he tells their dreams and the dreams come true and he says to the butler as he goes back to the palace and says, don't forget me. And he forgets him for two more years and so much for the good times emerging in prison. It's been about 17 years now. 17 years of bad times. I wonder where you are in your downward spiral in the 17 years of this is not working for good, Lord. This is not working for good. I've been in this 10 years, 15 years, it isn't showing up. And then, Pharaoh has a dream and the butler remembers and Joseph tells the dream And it's true, and he is made vice president of Egypt, put in charge of all the food as the famine years come. And the brothers up in Canaan need food desperately. The famine has made them sick. And they come down, and who is ready to give them their food and save their lives but the little boy who they sold into slavery? What's the point of this story? It's in three texts, and I'll read them to you. Genesis 45, verse 7. Joseph says to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. All of that evil... Selling into slavery was God's sending for salvation. Amazing. The selling into slavery was the sending to save the slave sellers. God was maneuvering to save the brothers who were sinning by turning their sinning into a sending for their salvation. That's the way God works all things together for good. The other text is Psalm 106.16. When he summoned on the land a famine and broke every supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Now underline the word sending in your mind. Because when it says in chapter 50, verse 20, let's listen to this now. Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about at the present time that which you see to keep alive a remnant for himself. Now I underline the word sent, God sent Joseph, and the word God meant good in order to put my view over against another popular one. The view that says God does not Purpose or plan or design the hard things that come into our lives. He simply uses them for our good after they happen. And that view asks rhetorically, what do you gain in your hope? for the future by saying God doesn't just come in after the event and use it to turn it for good, but He's there before the event, planning, designing, ordaining, and guiding so that all things will work together according to His purpose, not just coming in after it happened against His will and making it turn out. What do you gain, Piper? Here's what we gain. We gain rock under our feet. And solid, sovereign assurance that God can work all things for good. Because ask yourself this question. If God is in heaven watching all of this happen to Joseph, and unable or unwilling to do anything about it, though he desperately wants to and cannot... What possible assurance could I have that when he boldly declares, I will now take this evil and on into the future manipulate all kinds of thousands of circumstances so that it works out for your good? To which you might want to say, well, if you are so powerful to work out all those future circumstances, how about a few past ones? How about just stopping the evil? How about telling my brothers they dare not sell me into... How about sparing me 17 years of misery if you're so powerful to work all things together for my good in the future? If you can take this evil thing and make everything happen for my good, just back it up about 17 years and do it then. In other words, what we get under our feet by believing that God sent Joseph and that He... He ordained the selling of this boy into slavery that he might save the sellers. What we get is biblical faithfulness because that's what the text says. And we get a confidence that God is sovereign before tragedy. And therefore, he can and he will take tragedy and work it for our good. You try to spare God his sovereignty at the front end of pain and you lose His sovereignty at the back end of pain. I want it before so that nothing happens to me apart from His gracious, merciful and painful will so that I can have it afterwards and know that He will keep me and get me to glory. Is not Joseph's experience a picture of the cross? Listen to this statement made by the early saints about the sending of the Father to the cross. Just like He sent Joseph to Egypt to save those who tried to kill Him. That's exactly what the Father did. This is a picture of the Son. Are you going to say... That God saw Jesus on the cross and said, oh my, what will I do with this terrible event that has happened here that I did not ordain, did not plan, did not design, did not want it to happen. Any of these sins that brought Him to the cross that's totally against my will. But now I will take it and make something good out of it. I will save the world. Listen to the way the Bible describes the sending in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The cross is not an accident. It's not an afterthought. Just like God sent Joseph in and through the sins of his brothers, He sent Jesus in and through the sins of Herod and Pilate and the Jews and the Gentiles so that He might save the very ones who were hammering the nails if they would simply believe. Or the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So there's one illustration of Romans 8.28 from the Old Testament. The story of Joseph. Here's another one. Just a couple more. Job. He lost everything, right? He lost his... Family, he lost his cattle and his camels, he lost his health, and in every case, he attributed it to the overarching providence and sovereignty of God. And in fact, in chapter 42, verse 11, that's what the writer of the book says as well. He writes and he says, His family members showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. That's not Job articulating bad theology. That's the writer of the inspired book saying that what happened to Job happened according to the will of God. Now the question is, why did it happen? Why did it happen? And you don't need to have my answer to that. All I need to do is read you the authoritative answer from the book of James, chapter 5, verse 11, that goes like this. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You have seen the purpose, the purpose, purpose. In other words, God is on the front side of his pain, purposing something. Purposing something. Namely, mercy and compassion. Esther. Here she is, a virgin, beautiful, more beautiful than anybody in the Babylonian kingdom. Vashti, the queen of King Ahasuerus ticks him off. He says, I'm going to get rid of this queen of mine and get another queen. So he has a kind of beauty contest. And he chooses a Jewish, virgin, clean, kosher, young woman. And he's a defiled, pagan, unclean king. Sometimes we read this to say, oh cool, Esther's chosen to be the queen. This is not a benefit. To be folded into this man's harem is not something a girl who is a Jewish believer wanted to happen. This was, in one sense, a tragedy for Esther. Hadassah. Why? Mordecai tells us why. It's exactly the same as Joseph. Joseph. Mordecai, I said to her in a note, Is it not for such a time as this that you have come to the kingdom? Why? Because the Jews are about to be destroyed by Haman's wicked plan. And God has maneuvered to have a Joseph or a Jesus or an Esther in place to save His people. All things work together for God's people. And He maneuvers people into the most horrific circumstances at times in order to do His awesome saving work. Now, one illustration for the children especially. So if you're under 12, listen carefully now. Alright? We all know the story of Jonah. Alright? Jonah is supposed to go to Nineveh and preach so that Nineveh could be saved. God's a God of mercy. He heads the opposite direction on a boat. Finally, it gets through to him. This is not a good idea. We're about to get swamped by the water. He confesses his sin. He tells them on the boat, I'm going to be thrown overboard if you want to, and then God will stop the storm. And they take him. They pray, oh God, forgive us. They throw him overboard. Now, I don't know which is worse, to drown or to be digested in the belly of a fish. But I think being digested in the belly of a fish is probably worse than drowning. So a bad thing happened. To be swallowed whole by a big fish is a very bad thing. I do not want to be swallowed whole by a big fish. I would rather drown quickly. But you kids all know that when that fish swallowed Jonah... God did it, because the text says, God appointed a great fish, appointed, you're appointed, fish, swallow it, and fish obey God. He swallowed Jonah, this fish did, and threw him up on the beach, and Jonah said, I get the message, and went to Nineveh, and the whole city repented, God is in the business of saving people through Joseph types, Esther types, Jesus types, Jonah types. And it always goes bad for God, people, on the way to salvation. You think you're going to accomplish anything good for God without pain? Forget it. Whoever would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, maybe that's enough illustrations. I have others written down, but I think that's probably enough. The thorn on the flesh, Paul, his imprisonments in Rome, all of them he he talked about working for good. So here's the point of the message. Let's just apply it in closing here now to unbelievers and believers. For unbelievers, the point of this message is this. Don't you want everything in your life, the horrible things and the good things, to work together in some inscrutable way that only God can figure out for your everlasting good. Don't you want that? In other words, you want God on your side. And if you want God on your side, the Gospel of the Bible is see God in Jesus, hear the call of God, come to Me all you who labor and are heavy laden, Receive freely the gift of forgiveness. Accept the garment of righteousness which you don't have and you'll never have so that you can be acceptable to God and then rest in Him and all things will work together for your good forever. It's an invitation. Let me say a final word for believers. I know that's most of you here and I'm thrilled that it's most of you here. Oh, may God prevent you from responding to this message with passivity toward the devil, resignation toward evil, and a casual attitude toward American consumerism. As though I have said, oh, cool, everything works together for me. I'll just succeed in business and I'll buy the nice house and I'll buy the nice extra house and I'll buy and I'll buy and I'll buy and I'll buy and I'll just receive and receive and the whole world can go to hell because all things is working together for my good. Oh God, I pray that this congregation would not respond to this message that way, but rather like this, just like. Tom Jones did in the prayer meeting on Friday morning. If you're here, Tom, don't mean to embarrass you, but he was sitting right here beside me and he prayed something like this. He said, Oh Lord, what I hear in Romans 8.28 is go to the hard place. Go to the hard place. That's right. That's the message of this verse. The message of this verse is take risks... In the spreading of a passion for God's supremacy. The message of this verse is. Go to the hard place and do the hard thing in the cause of love. This verse is a call to spend yourself in the cause of Christ and his kingdom. This verse is a call to do something radical and crazy. I said that about several years ago. And I remember one of you came to me afterwards several years later and said that was the morning when you said, do something radical and crazy. That was when I dreamed of the Lydia Fund. That was when I dreamed of adopting these new children. So I'm asking right now, Lord... As I say, is not Romans 8.28 a call to do something radical and crazy with your life? Isn't it to take Operation World, the book, and open it and start reading about the untold needs of the nations and dream men, perhaps, with your entrepreneurial bent and women with your hearts of intelligent and creative compassion. Dream a dream for your life that is more than making money and being comfortable in the suburbs. Dream, a dream, because whatever love costs, it will be huge. And this text says, no matter the cost, all the costs work together for your good. Oh, that there might be 2,500 dreams dreamed in these next years. A hundred new ministries created. A hundred new missionaries sent. A hundred new ideas of how to get into the city and make a difference for Jesus. Oh, let yourself dream because if you have a promise from an omnipotent God, everything works together for your good. Nothing can stop you. Just don't play games with God by padding your life moving toward comfort instead of toward need. Move toward need, not comfort. Spend your little life. It is so short. Then comes the judgment. You'll give an account for every minute. And oh, how glad you will have been if you ventured all on the promise. All things work together for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Father, I beg of You that from the back to the sides to the front, the Spirit would move on this congregation. May every person, whether they came believers or unbelievers, say in their heart, I take my stand on Jesus. I rest in Jesus. I bank on Jesus. I don't care what it costs at work. I don't care what it costs in the neighborhood. I don't care what it costs on the mission field. I don't care what it costs financially or health-wise, because I know that all the costs work together for good. And I just want to follow you. So create radical saints here, Lord. Don't create people who are passive toward the devil. Don't create people, oh God, who are resigned with evil, who don't make war on injustice. And don't let us be casual and complacent and just go with the flow in American consumerism and materialism. Oh God, create a counter-cultural kingdom force out of this congregation that will cause the nations to believe. In Jesus' name I pray.